Welcome to Books and Beyond with your host, Alison. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl. No, my heart am I, Kia Welcome to Books and Beyond. This is your host, Alison, and today I'm joined in the studio by my BFF, Karen. Kia ora, Karen. Kia ora, Alison. Thank you for that kind introduction. <laughs> now, look, I hope everyone's enjoying their holidays. Last week, we were talking about beach reads, um, which are a, a traditional summer holiday pastime. But afterwards, Karen pointed out to me that a vacation is also an opportunity to indulge in another type of read, the BFB. So, Karen, tell me, what is a BFB? Oh, a BFB is a big, fat book. I love this term. I didn't come up with it. I wish I had. Um, but it is a... A used term, if you Google it, you'll see BFBs um, abound on the internet. So BFBs would be those, I have seen more or less people find the cutoff at about 600 pages. So the 600 plus pagers, which I like to say are experienced almost more as a cohabitation than a read. Mm. So I love that. Mm. <laughs> Non-judgmental. So um, traditionally, the paragon of BFBs has always been war and peace, well, surely. Well said, yes, war yeah. and peace. Um, so that weighs in at a hefty 1,300 pages. And as well as being the paragon of the BFB, it's also the paragon of novel writing or reading for many. Reading War and Peace truly is, I have to say, one of those standout experiences for readers. Like for mountaineers would be scaling Everest. Just putting a little kiwiana mm. there, a touch of kiwiana. So there's an array of superbly conveyed personalities. I'm using personalities instead of characters on purpose because they are so alive. They don't seem like characters in a book. They're, and they're etched against this historical backdrop, historical backdrops, war and peace. Or maybe war and peace is just a way of saying history. And maybe it's not a backdrop, it's a force. It actually could be possibly one of the personalities of the book in a way mm. but every time this is something just occurred to me mm. now but every time i rethink about war and peace i think something else about it which i suppose is probably the sign of a great novel isn't yes it? so um do you know about hedgehogs and foxes well no not really the only thing i know about uh are the hare and the tortoise basically which is that's fine so it's another greek parable you're on the way you're (laughs) close um so the hedgehog and the fox was an essay on tolstoy by the british philosopher isaiah berlin Uh, so he's also called also known as a historian of ideas which I discovered, I was trying to think, how could I sum up Isaiah Berlin? Really interesting man, born in Latvia, became a professor, immigrated to England, became a professor at Oxford. And um, I thought, how can I sum up his life? And I Googled it and it came up, historian of ideas. Mm. So um, he encountered this line in an ancient Greek poem. And the line is, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. So the fox, for all his cunning is defeated by the hedgehog's one defense. Oh, is that when you roll up in a ball? When the hedgehog rolls oh, up in a ball. Oh, when you, when <laughs> yes. Some human beings also yeah, roll actually, up in a ball true. when they're being harmed. So um, Berlin was very taken by this idea. I was actually going to say, you know, who wouldn't be? Mm. But 
it's possibly strikes me as a more amazing idea because of the fact that I can't separate it from what I've read his essay and what he has to say about it. Because what he does in this very brilliant essay is that he posits that we can make a fundamental distinction between people who are fascinated by the infinite variety of things out there, those are foxes, and people who relate everything to a central, all-embracing system, who would be the hedgehogs. So, for example, Shakespeare and James Joyce are foxes, and Dante, Proust, and Dostoevsky would be hedgehogs. So... Tolstoy, he looks at Tolstoy and he concludes that uh, the, the original different and unique position of Tolstoy is that he was actually by nature and by his gifts a fox. But he was interested, he believed what he wanted to from his life was to be a hedgehog. In other words, he wanted to construct a moral ideal, but his intellect, his brilliant intellect, saw through so many things that it made it impossible for him to construct this perfect moral ideal. And so the line that Isaiah Berlin uses about him is, hence the crack inside him, which everyone knows. And I thought that was really wonderful, this existential crack that leads to greatness. And in our time, also expressed by Leonard Cohen, there is a crack in everything. And that's how the light gets in. in. Oh, yes. Oh, brilliant. Well, look, um, a contemporary paragon of of BFB-ness would be Infinite Jest um, by... David Foster Wallace, you know, my favourite. Now, Infinite Jest is a post-postmodern encyclopedic novel. It's famous for its unconventional narrative structure and it features um, pages and pages of footnotes and many of those have their own footnotes. Um, In fact, I went down many rabbit holes just reading the endnotes and footnotes. It's a really clever novel, but I get the feeling that DFW was trying really hard to show just how clever he was, and I struggle a bit with that. Now, the title, Infinite Jest, comes from Hamlet, because uh, when Hamlet talks about the court jester Yorick, he said, Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio, a fellow of infinite jest. As he's holding the skull in his hand. Yeah. yeah. And so now this novel is, is set in a dystopian future in America and Canada, and its main locations are an elite tennis academy and a drug and alcohol recovery clinic. So it sounds to me as though um, DFW was really talking about his own life because he spent a lot of time in in both. Um, There's um, dozens of characters in the book, almost too many to keep up with, and huge amounts of detail about everything imaginable. Uh, And the book has been called Metamodernist. It contains, has thoughts on practically every facet of modern life from, I don't know, tennis to tattoos to terrorism. Um, And I think it's actually metafiction because it draws quite heavily on works like Hamlet and the Odyssey and, and a few more classics. 
But I was reading this great article, <coughs> excuse me, by Jason Road in the Paste magazine. Uh, I really enjoyed this. And it was called Why Insufferable People Love Infinite Chest. <laughs> why do they? Uh, why do they? <laughs> and he talks about the cult following um, by white male readers who are drawn to that sort of crafted casualness and the, the real meta commentary of DFW's works. And Road calls these readers gruesome fanboys. And he also says that um, DFW is a, um, here's a good one for you, a V-S-V-M-V-W-A-N, which who would know, but this stands for a very serious, very male, very white American novelist. Oh, very hard to argue with that. <laughs> that's true. V-H-H, no, yes, V-H-A-W-T. <laughs> that's right. Now, he says, here's a guy telling you how self-conscious he is about how self-conscious he is about how self-conscious he is about being smart, all while writing in a way guaranteed to get across just how smart and educated and self-conscious he is. I mean, DFW certainly had a gigantic talent, but he needed his readers and students to know just how talented he was. I mean, it must have been really exhausting for him. So would you say DFW was a hedgehog or a fox? Well, I think that DFW would have been a, a hedgehog, but with traits of fox. Meaning you think he was striving always to give this infinite jest of the world some unifying shape? Because the other thing that makes me think of DFW and his sad short life is, you know, Berlin did say foxes may live happy lives. I, I like that use of may rather mm. than can. I'm not sure if it comes from his generation being more gentlemanly, but I think that being a philosopher, that was the point. May live, not can live. Foxes may live happy lives, but hedgehogs' lives may not be happy. Yeah, um, and, you know, I think it was his unhappiness that, that makes me think of DFW as being a hedgehog. He never found peace within himself in, in that short life that he had. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it occurred to me as I was thinking, this, this hedgehogs and foxes keeps <laughs> reoccurring. I think that should be the title of our show. Um, that it, one of the best BFBs that I've ever read, um, sticking with faves for now, is Lonesome Dove, which is was published in the 80s. Um, so it's almost a thousand pages by the greatest novelist, greatest contemporary novelist mm-hmm. of the American West, uh, Larry McMurtry. So this is the story of an epic cattle drive through America's last wilderness. Um, in the period after the Civil War, led by these two aging ex-Texas Rangers who are seeking not to go gentle into that good night, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the most compelling aspects of the novel is the interplay between these two Rangers. It has a bit of bromance happening Mm -hmm. here. And one of them is a fox and one of them is a hedgehog is what occurred to me. So Augustus, the leisurely philosopher who likes to give rattlers time to think and perhaps crawl away on their own instead of killing them immediately <laughs> and who is the one who gets it about the importance of happiness and insists on his body being taken all the way back to Texas when he dies in Montana and because that was the place of his greatest happiness and as we said, you know, the fox may live a happy life and his old friend Call, who spends all his life trying 
trying to do his duty. As Gus says to him, says about him, he ain't dumb. He knows perfectly well that people don't live for duty, but he won't admit it, especially about himself. And he just can't even bring himself to recognize his own son, who's now a young man working with them on the cattle drive, causing great unhappiness of both of them because he, the son was conceived in what he considers a dereliction of his duty. But I do want to put in a bit of a bromance, but it has amazing woman characters. This is really a thing in all of Larry McBurtry's books. Uh, the women are intrepid. They're really well. They're original. And they, they live life quite um, voracious, but voraciously, not always necessarily voraciously, but in very uh, unique ways and very true to themselves. And I remember there was a piece in The New Yorker where Janet Maslin said she used the word lovably to describe how Larry Bertie writes his female characters. Um, it's very cinematographic. It actually started as a screenplay and then it became a novel and then it ended up being a screenplay again. Um, it turned into a television miniseries with Robert Duvall as Gus the Fox and Tommy Lee Jones as Call the Hedgehog. Loving both the book and the series as I do, I love that I once saw an interview with Robert Duvall saying, looking back at his long career and saying that Augustus was his Hamlet. Oh, now, because speaking of Hamlet um, being Shakespeare's longest play, um, I guess Hamlet was a, a BFB of its day. Ah, probably. <laughs> well said. Um, I think Larry McMurtry would have been very happy with that idea. <laughs> he has an interesting life himself. He's a descendant of cattle ranchers who grew up in a small town in Texas with the summers on the ranch. But he went to university and then got a fellowship to Stanford University where he hung out with Ken Kesey and the Mary Prince. Pranksters. So, um, how can we characterize the Merry Pranksters? Would you like me to characterize? Yeah, because <laughs> I was never sure if they were hippies. Well, they were sort of the precursors of the hippies. So, they were psychedelic, but they were sort of the missing link, well, the link, mm. not missing, between hippies and beats. They took lots of drugs, but they didn't go around saying peace and love, and um, they did crazy things. I think there was still a lot of meth-fueled things happening as compared to um, hippies that were more into the more passive drugs. So um, in a book, in Tom Wolfe's book, Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, there's a description. They drive this psychedelic bus. They take a, uh, a road trip in the psychedelic bus. And they, driven by Ken Kesey, and they drive the bus to Houston to visit Larry McMurtry, their old pal who's gone back to Texas. And they find him sitting in a little room typing away, you know, actually working hard. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good on him. Yeah. Well, look, um, another uh, BFB that I have loved is the one by um, Haruki Murakami called 1Q84. Um, and it's a, a trilogy as well. Um, now, I think um, uh, Murakami would have been a fox, would he? I think... That's what we... Yeah, yeah I, I think, think so. so. Yeah. Um, now, 1Q84, it's a dystopian novel um, and alternate history, but it's a real nod to George Orwell's 1984. And it follows two long-lost lovers who find each other in a mystical cult, and then they're drawn into this really distorted version of reality. It's a very complex and surreal book, very satisfying to read, but it has been called Murakami, magnum opus um, now uh, religion violence murder family ties and love i mean what more could you want as a reader 
But a fun fact about Murakami, and that um, he's been compared to Charles Dickens in his writing. And could I just add that um, DFW has been compared to Hemingway. And he would love that, I guess, wouldn't he? Mm, but, he just. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in his I, dreams. In his dreams, yeah. <laughs> but, look, I really get the feeling that Murakami is much less obnoxious than DFW. Oh, uh, I think absolutely not obnoxious at all because I got to see him at the Writers' Festival. It was so wonderful. He was fantastic. Um, did you get to see that? No, and you know, it's my one one of my regrets oh. is that I didn't. Yeah. Um, well, might be back. Yeah. Um, I do not believe that he has an obnoxious bone in his body. There was something really miraculous about him in this life force all wound up inside this small person's body but very athletic and he's a runner as you mm. probably know long distance runner yeah. <laughs> um, and such an intelligence just emanating from every pore yeah I just thought it was wonderful yeah hopefully he'll be back so Writers Festival if you're listening yeah now um, a writer whom they cannot bring to the Writers Festival mm. because unfortunately he's been dead for a hundred years <laughs> is um, the author of an, uh, the BFB that I am planning on reading this year which is Les Miserables and the author is Victor Hugo and that weighs in at a hefty 1,476 pages depending wow. on which could be a couple mm. more a couple less depending on your edition so this is a book that I've been meaning to read since my sister read it in high school I was able to recently repurchase it because, um, well, recently, <laughs> I think it was probably five years ago, uh, when it was the big, you know, success of the musical and the movie. Oh, yes. And, in fact, it's a movie tie-in edition. Um, and I noticed that it, I, I couldn't believe it when I looked at the translator's note. It says that he's actually cleared it up a little and, and cut some slight, it's, it's on a bridge, but he's made a few slight, sleeked it up a bit. But mm. So we'll see how that goes. Um, because the thing about Les Miserables is that it is gargantuan. This was something that Hugo absolutely did on purpose. So um, I noticed, I learned from Adam Thurwell, who writes about classics for The Guardian, he quoted the adjectives in one of his pieces that Hugo listed for a friend while he was writing this book. So we have astounding, extraordinary, surprising, superhuman, supernatural, unheard of, savage, sinister, Formidable, or perhaps I should say formidable, <laughs> gigantic, savage, colossal, monstrous, deformed, disturbed, electrifying, lugubrious, funereal, hideous, terrifying, shadowy, mysterious, fantastic, nocturnal, crepuscular. Gee, those adjectives could almost describe DFW. Some of them. <laughs> he also said, but this would be tying into DFW, he also said, according to Thurwell, uh, to a friend that Thurwell quotes, this book is a tragedy in which infinity plays the lead. So, there you go. Man is just the supporting role. So, you know, I, I'm presuming most people know by now it's the story of an escaped convict, Jean Valjean, who, and Javert, his um, nemesis, is this a policeman who hunts him day and night to make sure he gets punished according to the law, despite the fact that even if he hasn't always followed the law, Jean Valjean is basically a good He's person. He's a good man, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. And, um... The dozens of other characters, as you get in the 1,000 plus books, all miserable and mixed up with each other in exceedingly improbable ways, totally unlike War and Peace in this aspect, which is very naturalistic and, and in many other aspects. But interestingly, 
to give the essence of this book, I'll just tell how Hugo's are going to call it Les Misères was the original title. The Les Misères being the, literally meaning misery in French and poverty, misery in the sense of poverty. But um, he changed it to Les Misérables. So the Les Misérables, which would be the miserable people, if you read it literally, but actually the word when it Misérable in French represents not miserable poor people but rejected people outcasts mm. underdogs sort of and and rebels. and rebels so there's quite a difference isn't there yeah yeah, yeah. definitely interesting that's that's going to be a great one for you isn't it now um it's going to be a long one, that's and a long a great one. one. yeah <laughs> um now speaking of history or the history of art there's one that i have loved and that was called the goldfinch um published in 2013 by um written by donna tart and it's um nearly 900 pages long and this was a, a hugely ambitious novel that received very mixed reviews um it it did win the pulitzer prize for fiction but i can remember when it first was out and our library customers were really divided over it some loved it some hated it and we had really interesting discussions about it but it's an epic coming of age tales set in the present day but um it's also been called a um dickensian tale uh, just like 1q84 but you know i couldn't see shades of lords lord of the rings in it myself but um critics were really polarized Polaroid, Polaroid, and polarized. Um, oh, they possibly also things and, flashed in front of them like yeah. Polaroid. Um, they were polarized over this novel. Um, one called it engrossing, thrilling, and nimble. But Stephen King said it was amazingly good. However, the Sunday Times of London said that no amount of straining for high-flown uplift can disguise the fact that the goldfinch is a turkey. Hmm, I wonder if that was Peter Carey who said that. And oh. Sorry, not Peter Carey, John Carey, who was the literary, you know, he used to write the reviews oh, for the yes. Sunday Times. Another great mind. I'd be, I'd be probably disappointed. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I'm yes. a huge fan of John Carey. I wonder, he would, he would be waspish enough to say something to say like so. that. Yeah. Look, I loved it. Um, I found it very dreamlike, um, but I really enjoyed the references to art and art history throughout the novel. Well, I'm a big fan of Donna Tartt, so uh, Mr. Carey, if that was you, I'm not, I'll put your judgment aside when I read this book, which is on my bedside table, among others, um, because I read both of her earlier books, The Little Friend and The Secret History, and I thought they were wonderful. They're not quite BFBs. They're maybe practice BFBs. They're sort of BMFBs, which is big, medium, medium. fat books. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, speaking of history, I my um, next... BFB that I want to share is The Silk Roads. It's a nonfiction BFB, NFBFB. The Silk Roads, A New History of the World, which came out just a few years ago, written by a um, global history professor at Oxford named Peter Frankopan, who I think I may have met in my recent train ride across Central Asia, because we met an interesting young man who spoke perfect Russian at the Chinese border between Kazakhstan and China, who was acting very strangely, and we thought he must be a spy. (laughs) (laughs) He was English, but dressed in a button-down shirt in the middle of Central Asia with a Oxford haircut, but um, but might have been him. Spoke perfect Russian, um, which I think, which I believe... I that Peter Frankopan does. Anyway, um, this is 
he was probably there looking like a spy because he was taking notes for his book. So the first line of his book is, from the beginning of time, the center of Asia was where empires were made. Because in fact, this book is actually a history of the world. It's not just a history of the Silk Roads and of Central Asia. And he starts with Alexander the Great and takes us all the way up to modern times. And then he's even written an addendum to make it even a bigger, fatter book that came out last year, which is covers what happened since 2015 to the present time. And it's in really, really readable. And I want to say I'm, I'm disappointed in the publisher who plays a bit on the yellow peril type fear. So the inside cover flap says sweeping right across Central Asia and deep into China and India, a region that once took center stage is again rising to dominate global politics, commerce and culture. Mm, that's a bit uh, naughty, isn't it? I don't think so. I think it's more what he says in his in his introduction, which is, I hope to prompt new questions to be asked about the past and for truisms to be challenged and scrutinized. Doesn't sound like what the publisher is doing. <laughs> and in the introduction to the new one, I saw that he thanks everyone who read what he calls a history book, which is not the the shortest book that has ever been written <laughs> in a bit of an understatement and everyone who recommends it to friends or to strangers i'm so pleased that so many people are willing to look at things through another perspective from another perspective mm. so i thought that was really great and in general i all the history there's so many great history books that are bfbs anthony beaver for example all his books oh, about yes. stalingrad and berlin are also I can highly recommend. So, yeah. Oh, and um, there's so much, and ones with a historical theme. Um, I could perhaps just touch briefly on Vikram Sait's "A Suitable Boy." Um, that's 1,500 pages, but that's a really interesting one. It's an absolute epic because it was set um, in the newly post-independence post-partition India um, and it has been compared to Tolstoy's War and Peace but I, I loved this novel and as you you know I'm a huge fan of Vikram Seth he's a, another writer with gigantic talent but I've always had that feeling that he's not trying to show the reader how talented he is as opposed to DFW mm, we really need to but stop you, hitting on yeah, sorry, I've got to stop. <laughs> maybe that can be my resolution for next year, right. I've got to stop talking about about oh, um, DFW New Year's resolutions, we have to do a New Year's resolution show Yeah, yeah. but you know I just, one more um, DFW, I just can't imagine anyone writing an article called Why Insufferable People Love Vikram Saint Oh my to God! Be no, absolutely yes, not. Yes, because he's just a, such a lovely, lovely man. But I wish I could have more time to talk about his his writing. Um, maybe we'll do another show on him next year. Absolutely, we'll probably have another yes. book out because yes. I know that he's been writing for years a book called A Suitable Girl, which is a yes. sequel to A Suitable Boy. It was supposed to already be out, remember? Yes, that's right. It was supposed to come out in 2017, I think. So, looking forward to that one. That could be our um, one of our New Year's resolutions, read yes. the sequels. Yeah. So um, I think, I don't know how much time we have left, but 
if we got, I think we should absolutely touch on some New Zealand BFBs. Oh, yes. So the one I'd put forth is Janet Frame's autobiography, the three-volume autobiography, To the Island, An Angel at My Table, and The Envoy from Mirror City. Oh, yes. Such a great book. Mm. This was one of the first books I read after moving to New Zealand. And I actually gave away my copy. I'm kind of sorry about this. (laughs) I gave it away to someone who visited New Zealand and was traveling away on the plane and had not read this book, and I gave it to them to read on the plane. Um, It's an extremely vivid read, starting from her childhood and her adolescence in this poor but very uh, intense family living on along the railroads and uh, along the railroads because her father was a railway mm. worker for the <laughs> that yes, might sound kind of strange not camping on the railroad living in the railway workers cabins um, and then through her life as a student her years in mental hospitals and eventually her entry into the world of writers so it's the events of a very interesting life but also as she says it's about the transformation of these ordinary facts and ideas into a shining palace of mirrors mm. Is her phrase. Mm-hmm. And it's a journey is self-discovery and taking her from New Zealand to Europe and home again and her struggle to survive, her successful struggle happily. Yeah, yeah happily. I found it a really moving read. I, I just loved it. I must it, read it, it again. It manages to be really personal even though it's being written to be sent out there into the world, which is a very courageous uh, thing, yeah, 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 full of courage. Now, um, one more that's um, more recent in New Zealand um, BFB uh, would be The Luminaries by Eleanor Catton, um, published in 2013. And um, it actually won the Man Booker Prize that year. Um, it's 850 pages, I think. But it's another epic tale that um, divided both critics and readers. Um, it um, set on the west coast of South Island in the 1860s and it's about all the people that flocked to the west coast to try and make their fortunes on the gold fields. It's um, a very complex book full of mystery and unsolved crimes and I found it quite challenging actually to get into. It's quite opaque. Um, there's over 20 main characters um, and uh, quite a bit hard to keep track of them all. Lots of references to astrology and astronomy throughout, but ultimately a really satisfying read. But it, it took me quite a while to get through it. But look, we're running out of time, so um, just a reminder to, for everyone to have a great holiday and um, really just want to wish everyone happy reading, happy holidays. Um, ra. This program was brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. Every day.